listening to WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten. Let's get the latest in New Hampshire government news with our friends at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Get their articles at NewHampshireBulletin.com. They join WKXL in the morning every Friday, and this week, Amanda Goki's back. Welcome. Hi, AJ. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So a theme for this past year since the previous presidential election has been election reform and what everyone wants to do state to date, state to state with regards to it. New Hampshire is uh, no different when it comes to it. It looks like there's some question on affidavit ballots. I mean, start off with what are they and then we can dive into the bill. Yeah, absolutely. So. Actually, right, this is a new initiative. This is not something that we are currently using in the state. Um, It's a Republican-sponsored proposal, an affidavit ballot. What that would do is essentially for somebody who goes to vote and doesn't have identification, so they don't have a way of proving where they live or their citizenship, um, they would be required to use this different kind of of ballot. Um, There's some questions. It's not entirely clear if that ballot, it might look different. Um, It might be a different color. Um, And then they would have to submit their documentation um, in the mail after they voted. So it's been criticized as, and it's been called a provisional ballot. And what that essentially means is, you know, you would cast your your vote in the election, but um, it's contingent on you turning in that documentation for your vote to actually count. Um, And so that would potentially delay our election results. They wouldn't be finalized until up to 14 days after after the election. And I'm assuming also that this is going to be reliant on towns and cities to deal with these ballots, right? That's correct. And it would also require the Secretary of State to hire some additional people. Um, Secretary of State David Scanlon um, spoke with my colleague Ethan DeWitt about this and, you know, said that he would have to hire more people. Uh, He didn't have an estimate about how much that might cost and said it was something that his office could handle, although he didn't really have the the specific details yet on um, how much that would cost. I mean, what sort of alternatives are you seeing for Democrats propose since they're since they're not on board with us? I would say there's a pretty big ideological gap between the Democrats and the Republicans on this issue What the Democrats are really what they want and what they're saying is they want voting to be accessible and they want it to be um, they don't want these kinds of voting restrictions because they say these restrictions could disenfranchise people who do have the right to vote. So, you know, with a proposal like this one, they point to somebody like an old elderly person who might be disabled. They may not drive anymore. They might just not have um, an ID that they that they use. And that might not be somebody for whom it's really easy to to get an ID. Um, they point to folks who are homeless, who also um, similarly might not have identification. Um, Democrats this session, we've seen them you know, there's some bipartisan um, bills that are moving forward, like creating an online election um, portal that would have information. Um, and so both parties can get behind that sort of proposal. And with Republicans, we really see a lot of bills this session that are focused on tightening access to voting, 
Senator Bob Guida, who's the prime sponsor of this bill that we're talking about, um, which is Senate Bill 418. You know, he said if there's so much as one person who casts a vote who shouldn't have, that's, you know, Xing out and disqualifying one legitimate voter. Um, so those are very different positions. On the one hand, wanting to make sure that people have access to vote and pushing for that on the Democratic side and the Republican side, really trying to um, tighten these restrictions and make it um, make it very their their term and the the what they're pointing to is it's all about election integrity um and so so they're just very different approaches and once again governor Sununu is looking like he's in kind of a rough spot because he doesn't necessarily agree with uh getting this bill through either right yeah and i don't think that was a huge surprise um you know, Sununu said this create would potentially create an issue for uh, a couple longstanding New Hampshire traditions. Obviously, the first in the nation primary could be jeopardized, he said um, at a press conference yesterday. Um, if you do have something where your results aren't finalized until 14 days after an election, um, it could it could mean trouble for um, for that first in the nation primary, which Sununu has obviously uh, prioritized, um, as has the secretary of state in the past. Um, and then there's one other potential issue um, that Sununu pointed to, which was the motor voter um, exemption that New Hampshire currently has. So in 93, New Hampshire kind of said, we're not going to go um, this route of, you know, providing pathways to voter registration when you get your driver's license. Um, but that in, in exchange for that, New Hampshire had to provide um, same day voter registration. And uh, this bill could, could, uh, change that. Um, so that was another concern that Tanunu had raised. Yeah, it's the Republicans need to focus on what's more important to them to have um, voter ID or ID being required when you go to vote or offering all these other alternatives because it's it, it makes it more confusing. And and Tanunu is right. I mean, if as soon as New Hampshire ends up not being able to get that dramatic New Hampshire primary night experience, it's a big deal. I mean, it's there, there's a lot of political theater when it comes to this stuff. I mean, when because when Iowa got screwed up in the last cycle with their online voting thing, I mean, it Iowa looked horrible for months with that. When the, the company had like the shadiest app name. Do you remember the the name of the app? I, I don't know. I was actually yeah, I wasn't yet here. It was it was really bad. It was some sketchy name too. I'm like, you guys honestly bought this and didn't think it was a good idea. There's like, there's a lot of of theater and public relations and making New Hampshire stand out as like this is an honest place where you can get an honest vote and people anyone since we're very purple when it comes to a lot of things, people from both parties can come in and change. You can vote for whatever party you want for it, and, and that's very important from an economic, from political to um, to perspectives to to keep the primary here invalid. And I think the other point that you raised is really valid as well. And that's something that people have been talking about, which is the fact that this legislation, if it does pass, will be very complicated and confusing potentially to explain to voters. Um, that was something that Liz Tantarelli um, at the League of Women Voters had raised in, in her testimony on this bill. You know, she's somebody who's charged with telling, you know, 
everyday average people who aren't necessarily following all of the 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 bills as they move um, through the legislature that closely, but having to translate it and explain to them, here's what this is going to mean for you when you register to vote. So the more difficult that is to explain to people, the concern is that less people will show up to vote. Yeah. What I would give for for the state to have like a solid like this, this is the most basic way to figure out how to vote when and where. And this is what you need to bring with you. And these are the candidates ahead of time. Like none of I don't know if any state does this properly. It's typical kind of state government problems with regards to communications there. I don't feel like any of them do a fantastic job unless I'm missing something. I don't know about Vermont, but um, it, I would love for something like that. I mean, I love people go to WKXL to listen to get the latest news on where to get stuff like that. But on the other hand, as me, the guy that's having to, to try and give honest information out there, it's so confusing for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I agree with having to translate some of these bills and explain exactly what they'll do. And then oftentimes you see that there's a a divide even between what lawmakers and politicians are saying their measures are going to do versus what the text of the law itself says will happen if it if it becomes law. So that's that's another divide that can be difficult to uh, to broach. General rule of thumb: read, read at least a little bit of the bill if you if you honestly are vested in it because it, it's. I, I my favorite bill is the the uh, privacy bill that Buzz Schur, uh wrote an amendment to the New Hampshire Constitution two years ago. I believe it was. It was literally one sentence. I'm like, thank you, Buzz. You made my life so much easier. I can understand it, and it, but it still leaves enough room for people to uh, for the courts to kind of get the finer details on it. All right, let's move over to energy a little bit here. Uh, you wrote an article with regards to ratepayer protections and job losses and environmental concerns at play for Berlin and biomass. Uh, to start off with, for those who aren't in the know, what is biomass when you're talking something like this? That is such a great question, AJ. I'm glad you asked it. So, and it's it's not the most intuitive. Um, so, essentially, biomass takes like the discarded little bits of trees that the tree has gone to to use to make a board, but it's kind of like the scrap wood that's left over and it's actually burning that wood to create electricity. Um, and one of the problems uh, that, you know, environmental minded folks have pointed to with a lot of biomass, um, this use of biomass is not very efficient. So the Berlin station, according to a calculation from the Department of Environmental Services, is about 25% efficient. So another way of thinking about that is, you know, you're burning four trees and actually just one of those is being converted to electricity. I mean, has there been a lot of developments? I I know you do energy. It's the reason why I'm asking you specifically. I mean, has there been a lot of advancements when it comes to handling this? Like that's not great. <laughs> no, it's bad. Um, so yes, there are like very efficient biomass plants in Europe. So the technology exists out there. Um, it's just a question of the kind of boilers that they're using. I will say too, you know, I've, I've, I've talked and, and, and it's a hard topic because obviously we're growing trees here in New Hampshire. The logging industry has been really hard hit in recent years with the exodus of pulp mills. And so a lot of people who are foresters or loggers have said, hey, like, 
like biomass is this really great market for us to be able to sell scrap wood. And we can't do the sustainable forestry that we want to if we don't have a market for the kind of scrap wood that we can't use to build. It's not the wood that you're going to use to build like timber, lumber, like you're not going to get nice big planks out of this wood. It's, it's little tiny bits and pieces and scraps. Um, and that previously would have gone to pulp mills. Now it's going to, to biomass. Um, but there are, you know, people sometimes will use like pellet stoves in their house for heating and those can be highly efficient. And I will say, um, you know, these conversations and legislative debates that have happened, you know, New Hampshire is one place. Vermont has had these conversations as well. The lawmakers seem to say, and I think environmentalists agree, you know, if you can burn wood for electricity, but also capture the heat. So if you're using the heat from it, the equation changes and it becomes a better use of that resource. And by better, I just mean you're putting that heat to use as opposed to it's just really hot and it's burning up and it's going, you know, hot air and the hot air is just being released into the atmosphere. Um, So that's, that's another component of this. It's like when you have those um, those crappy Amazon uh, wall chargers for your phone, and it slowly sort of charges your phone, but there's a ton of heat just dissipating. It's it's waste. It's waste energy, and that's a, a super uh, dumb way to think about it. But that's the uh, <laughs> metaphor that popped in my head. Uh, what's yeah. the so what's the uh, the house looking to do with regards to this? Um, so essentially, there's actually a bill. It's originating in the Senate. Um, and it is Senate Bill 271. It, it's looking at it's so it's a little complicated. So basically, there's a power purchase agreement where the the state has agreed to pay a little bit over market, and in some cases, a lot over market. So over the going rate of energy for this plant, they have a 20 year contract. And what they want to do is they they initially put in a protection because they said, look, this can be really expensive for ratepayers. This can add up to a lot. And by a lot, I mean like $100 million in a year. Um, so they said, that's the cap. That's the maximum amount that we want ratepayers to have to pay in a di- uh, of this overpriced overmarket energy. And by overpriced, I just mean there's a going rate of energy on the energy markets. And this plant is operating above that. It's a, it's a ratepayer subsidy essentially to keep this plant in business because the people from the plant are saying, look, if we don't charge this amount, we're going to go out of business. We can't, we're not viable unless we're getting this, this rate. Um, so the bill, what the bill is doing is it's saying it's removing that cap. It's, it's basically adding, it would be in this case, it's an additional 70 approximately around $70 million um, that would be charged to ratepayers. In this case, it's folks who are in Eversource territory and Eversource customers. So that would translate, um, according to Tom France at the Department of Energy, um, he said that would be about 2 to $3 a month for an Eversource customer um, in their monthly bill. Are com- companies in the logging industry supportive of doing something like this? Like, have they spoken one way or another with regards to this bill? Do you know? Yeah. So there's a, a lobbying group um, that represents um, folks who are loggers and foresters, um, and they do support this legislation. Again, you know, they've seen a really dramatic 
contraction of the market for um, this kind of low grade wood. And they say that's a huge problem. It, it means uh, it makes it much more expensive to, um, to do logging in the, in the North country. And, and that's, that's a big, you know, employer of that region. They've already seen a huge exodus of, of people that was reflected in the census data from 2020 who have left the region because when those pulp mills closed, they lost a lot of jobs. Um, and the people from the region are saying, you know, this is a big economic driver and we can't afford to lose it. And it's another, this is a rep- recurring issue when it comes to new uh, energy sources that are out there. I actually had a conversation with Jeff Feingold right before talking to you a little bit on this, which you'll be able to listen to Monday morning. Um, it, it takes time for the technology to advance or for companies like this to gain enough money from what they're doing with their business to upgrade to get the new fancy equipment that maybe you see in Europe and such. And I, I, That must be playing into um, their desire to keep this going too, like long term, this will become more efficient, but it takes a while to get there. Yeah. And there are, you know, they say that they want to do some of these heating projects with the city, the, the, the um, Burgess Biopower is a company that runs the Berlin station. They would like to use the waste heat to, um, you know, heat the streets of Berlin, to heat the sidewalks. That's initiatives that have been done in other in other cities, um, but you know, critics of this bill have said there's really no there's no requirement in the bill that they that they do this. What are environmentalists saying around this? I was going to say that's a great question. So you know, it's a concern for people who are worried about the climate. And one important thing, you know, to keep in mind with this. Um, New Hampshire does consider biomass to be a renewable source of energy. Um, it's also considered to be carbon neutral, but that's because you're factoring in for each tree that you're cutting down, it will eventually grow back. Um, you know, the time frame on that could be 50 years. So you might take a tree that is, um, you know, currently sequestering carbon and you don't really have that back in the equation for another for another 50 50 years. Um, So environmentalists are concerned about that. It also is a big source of emissions um, in terms of what is released into the atmosphere when you burn a tree for energy. Um, So, you know, when I reported on this in Vermont, I took, I spoke with um, people who said, it, it, it can be as emitting as coal, which is kind of a crazy comparison to draw. Um, and that really stuck with stuck with me. Um, so, you know, if you're thinking climate disaster in 20 years, like a 50 year time span, those environmentalists are saying that's that's too long. We don't that's time we don't have. Amanda Goki over at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, AJ. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more of their reporting. Definitely check them out. You're listening to WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted. We'll be right back.